Hey, my name is Zach, and this is the Plaid Jacket Philosopher, the podcast for tradespeople and the blue-collar middle class. I'm open to punch a few holes in the stereotypes that surround blue-collar workers and hopefully share a lot of the stories behind how we got into our line of work and the honest joy you can get from working outside of the office space. The plan is to mix in interviews as well as some solo stories from job sites, fatherhood, and personal experiences that led me to where I am today. Some will be funny, some will be personal, but hopefully any and all content here can help broaden what your opinion is of the blue-collar middle class. Hey, 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 welcome to a new episode. This week, I'm very excited to have the author, and he's actually got a lot more accomplishments to that too. I don't know how much we'll get into it, but Gary Benger, Benger here, and we're going to talk over his book. It's titled Unfettered Journey. Uh, it's it's kind of a cool sci-fi novel delving into AI, philosophy, the meaning of life. Um, I'm not going to get too much into it right now because I'm going to let Gary introduce himself and we'll get into the book. But uh, I would highly recommend it. And so the floor is yours, Gary. Okay. Well, Zach, I'm delighted to join you and the audience here to talk about my book in the future and lots of stuff. Um, let's see. My background. Um, well, I think I think it's important for your audience to know that I grew up, um, you know, blue collar, middle class. Um, my um, I, Actually, I, I put myself through college working in a steel mill and a coal-fired power plant. Okay. And so worked a few summers doing that stuff, realized what that, those are hard jobs. <laughs> they are. They are. <laughs> when you're down there by the blast furnace, or if you're relining the brick uh, on the inside of a basic oxygen furnace, when it's uh, hotter than heck outside and you're inside of that thing, uh, throwing bricks around, uh, these are hard jobs. So, so that's my background. Um, I was lucky enough to, um, to uh, do really well in school. Um, went to Harvard business school, which may sound out there. I guess they had to let someone in that was uh, blue collar. <laughs> so came from the Midwest, uh, did that. And then I spent um, almost 30 years um, in a, a lot of high tech. Um, I had the fortune to work in everything from um, bioscience to chip design to computer peripherals um, and um, video over the internet and, um, and then um, on the internet with eBay. And uh, so after that career, I um, uh, retired actually from that and did a whole bunch of other things, including writing this book, Unfettered Journey. Well, that's that's awesome here. And thank you for your part in uh, allowing this video communication over Internet to be, be possible. Because, <laughs> yeah, that's that's quite the uh, that's quite the varied. I don't know, I guess your career going from yeah working in a coal fired furnace to to then working with, you know, technology and what were you saying? Biosciences as well? Like, yeah, I was half a dozen years in uh, doing um, uh, what's called electrophoresis and chromatography. They're the technologies that actually sequence the human genome. So it was a, a company that was, you know, 65 million when I joined now it's two and a half billion these wow. days. Um, and they still make all that stuff that helps, um, you know, do all of this really amazing science. Yeah. So I, but I, so I had the chance to investigate and understand at least somewhat so many of these technologies that power, you know, all these changes in our lives. So that's pretty incredible. And not to kind of dive too deep right away into the book, but you certainly moved up a few levels <laughs> as far as <laughs> a reference to your level system in the book. And, uh, and that that's part of the part that kind of, it, it really fascinated me in the book and the kind of the social standing and the ladder and the way that it was quite rigid in the book in this kind yes. of dystopian look at the future. And so, I know roughly the book was set, I want to say about 120 years into the future. 40 years into the future. 140. Okay. 
yeah so i i think it's a fascinating look at everything and obviously the the ai aspect of it is really interesting to me doing a like a labor intensive job one that's that realistically in the future could probably be replaced by ai and so the way that you look at that and the future that you kind of discuss as far as the need for work whether it's necessary to actually work these jobs anymore i find it I find it a really interesting idea and something that, yeah, I've been looking forward to talking to you kind of ever since I started to unpack the book and realize what the substance was in there. Oh, so Zach, I'd, I'd love to just go deep on that one to maybe start because sure. I think this is maybe I think the most relevant idea to you know this audience we're talking to here. And so here's here's the here's the idea. I mean, well, I started off to say I wrote this book with a hard science perspective because I think a whole lot of science fiction has gone into fantasy. You know, there's dragons and there's crazy stuff that just is not going to happen, right? Right. <laughs> We're not going to upload our brains anytime soon. Not going to happen. Well, I think we there's unlikely that we really have to worry about you know the um, the robots taking over the world and killing us all. It's not going to happen. So, you know, so I asked from a hard science point of view, what is highly likely? And so that's important because then I think if we think about what's highly likely, then we can figure out what the real things are as problems to solve. Okay. So yeah. that's the backstory. And, and I think, um, you know, I have an advantage because of all the technologies that I've been immersed in for the last 30 years that I, I think I understand how some of those things will highly more likely than not advance. You know, a lot of this is just engineering. You can start with one thing and see what will happen next. And you know, we have to build the darn stuff <laughs> it has right. to be practical. Uh, so, so, uh, so with that in mind, here's here's something that I, here's something I think everyone can relate to, is that if you look back over the last twenty years, one of the things that's happened is that we continue to automate jobs away. You know, there's a TV show on the U.S. called uh, How It's Made, and, it's, and there's one factory after another. You're making ping pong balls. You're making this and that. And as I watched a ton of those episodes, it suddenly occurred to me. <laughs> they're all the same. Okay, here's a bunch of guys in, working in this factory, and now we automated this step out. Yeah, And then we automate that step out. And so it goes from some automated process to some uh, worker to an automated process, et cetera. And, you know, that's just continuing, right? Um, it gets it it's it's gets really hard to automate it all out. In fact, uh, some of my friends in the um, in the uh, robotics industry uh, have said it's really hard. <laughs> friend of mine spent his whole career in that and he said as an example hp gave up trying to automate fully the lines because there's something called casual inspection you know something's coming down the line and um you know the the, the guy looks at it and goes oh it's wrong he pulls it off because it's something funny about it mm -hmm. it's really hard to teach an ai or robot those little last minute rules <laughs> they just don't do it very well uh, so so it is harder and harder to automate things, but you know there's a lot of money in these for big companies to do that. So, so that's a trend. Okay, so, so that's sort of a, a backstory. And now let me talk about AI and robotics. Yeah, yes. So please, I um... believe I believe that in this century, the two most critical um, technologies changing the world will be bioscience. And then secondly, AI and robotics. But that bioscience, it's going to change our lives. You know, we're going to, you know, a hundred and some years, we'll, we'll mostly cure cancer, right? We'll, we'll live longer on average and all that sort of thing. But my point is, we, we may not notice it because, right. 
if everyone lives another 20 years, well, okay, you know, that's the way life is. Just that so, gradual, yeah, gradual incline. Yeah, yeah. So 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 that will be important. So but I think what we really will notice is the AI and robotics. And so that's focus on my book because so now let me talk about that. If you think about um, you know, the Boston dynamics, have you seen the dancing robots and all that sort of thing? Oh, absolutely. Then, yeah, the dog and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. So it looks like that's kind of around the corner, right? It's gonna happen tomorrow. Well, I'm also sort of a little bit of a cynic on that. Um, these things are always harder to actually put in practice than most people think, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you think about the automobile, well, yeah, Henry Ford invented it over 100 years ago, but it took maybe a century to make the car what it is today. You know, you had to get all the electronic systems in and you get you know, windshield wipers and you had to get a road infrastructure and you had to have a legal system. What happens when people get run over and all that sort of thing. So it took a long time, but it eventually got to the car we have today. And so I think the same thing is true about robots is that it's a pretty straightforward engineering problem. You know, we're just going to have to work on it for a long time. Um, and that there's all kinds of an economic reason for big companies to spend the money to make the robots better and better. And so what I think is absolutely highly likely, and perhaps I would say almost inevitable, that eventually robots are going to walk around among us. Okay. So, well, and, oh, yeah. sorry. I was going to say, and you, you kind of, you illustrate that really well in the book too, even in the varying different types of robots, right? You've got like the med bots, the Pippa bots, I believe it was, who are kind yes. of like your, your personal assistants, like, and they kind of take all these different forms depending on what their, what their task is or what, what assistance they help you with. But it's, yeah, it's interesting because you illustrate that really well in the book and just the variance in all of them and their applications. Yeah. And, but there'll be, there'll be standard chassis and, you know, and because that'll be, you know, economies of scale and all that sort of thing will cause that to happen. But yeah. And, and think about, and then I also think, um, you know, they'll, they'll fit, um, uh, in our infrastructure, because why would we re-engineer trillions of dollars of infrastructure that is built for humans, right? So, right. And, and, and then here's something about jobs. Um, actually, I attended a workshop at the Santa Fe Institute um, like a, about a year before I finished the book. Um, he, and someone was talking about jobs and he described it as sort of a landscape. Think about a topology with hills and valleys. And, and the analogy was to think is the water rose, that's jobs going away. Okay. Yeah. So then the question is, what are the top of the hills? <laughs> right. What's it going to take longest to erode away? Yeah. So, you know, maybe your job, Zach, podcaster is really hard, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might be hard to get a, a human take on, on what's going on. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> but but I like to joke that actually, it's seriously joke that one of the jobs at the top of those hills is, is roofer. You know, the yep. guy that climbs up on the roof with a bunch of shingles and has to attack him in place, right? I mean, how the heck do you automate that? You, you're not going to have some giant machine that kind of moves over the top of a house and makes it work. You're actually going to have to have some robot that is has picks on our aspects of, of uh, maneuverability and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So, so because when is, that, it, is it the yeah. physical relation to real life that's the biggest obstacle when it comes to AI? Like what, like even when you were talking about picking apart fine intricacies on a line that that's, that's really hard to do. Is it the, like the, I don't know, the physical relation to what's going on around, is that seeming to be the biggest obstacle in the way of this? Or because just because you also related it to roofing like that, again, it's kind of, it's an actual movement thing. It's getting up there. It's, 
Yeah. 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 Well, there, so I think two things, you know, I think we as, as animals, we've had a million years of evolution to outrun the big cats, right? So we're right. really good. I mean, that's why we celebrate our athletes, right? <laughs> you know, your, your, uh, your hockey stars that you were talking yeah. about, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, they're really good at that. So, so um, that's really hard to get uh, specific and to make it, you know, lightweight enough to move around in the environments that we need to move them around in. But um, so that's hard. And then also to get them to understand what we really want them to do. I mean, I actually think over this next century, uh, robots are going to be incredibly annoying. <laughs> Very clunky and kind of awkward. Oh, no, you tell them to do something and they do something really stupid. And it's right. like, oh, the programmer didn't think of that. You know, how could you possibly get that wrong? And so this will happen all the time. And, you know, and, and they'll, they'll, they'll make mistakes, the unintended consequences, the unknown unknowns. You know, people will die, right? I mean, planes will crash. You know, automated vehicles will kill people. I mean, you know, stupid things will happen until we figure out all these bugs. And it'll take a long time, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, things that we even see in real life now with you know tesla's self-driving option and you know there are stories coming out about stuff like that happening or accidents that are caused directly because of it because of an unexpected circumstance that pops up yeah 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 so 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 this is going to be in a very annoying and 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 crazy order of a century or more before this happens but i argue that it will eventually happen you know and when they when that roofer is making five hundred thousand dollars a year yeah (laughs) Some company is going to make that general purpose robot that can walk around and do that job adequately enough. And then think what happens. It's all over. All the jobs are gone. Mm-hmm. And so now, so now let's talk about this is serious, I think. I'm suggesting that this is highly, highly likely. And it's inevitable because the economics will drive it, that this will go away. And so now here's a question. Now, and, and think about this. Um, as robots you know uh, mine the ores and they smelt the metal they run those factories they build the factories that build the robots when robots build robots um you know you zach could have 20 robots running around doing your stuff for you right right so so for the first time in human history our economic output is 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 disconnected from our labor hours you know, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we think about productivity and it's all per, per labor hour, right? That's how it's been forever. And, you know, and so, you know, the, the market uh, capitalism system that we have in Canada and the U.S. and the Western world, um, it, it does a pretty good job of making us create more stuff, right? So yeah. we have a higher standard of living um, than other places. I, I read a, a fun fact that the Cubans who left Castro's Cuba um, and went to Miami on, on the average, they have about seven times as much stuff as the families they left behind. Today. Yeah. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I, I would completely, I understand why. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. So, 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 but that's, so, but now what happens when robots make robots and there's a lot of robots and now we have a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, my, my, my math running the GDP of the world and the U S forward 140 years says we'll have between 10 and 15 or 20 times as much stuff per person as we do today. Is that, is that necessarily like material objects or production per person? 
It's production per person. Okay. Because, okay. Again, because the production per person, you know, you know, we've had you know one to three or four percent um, growth per year, and even if you do that without the fact that you've got robots making robots, right? You right. still you'll have over ten x as much stuff per person. You know, if the demographics do what we think, which is, you know, the population will go up over 10 billion, then it'll probably go down because the fertility rates in the world are going down. So anyway, some some important, um, you know, assumptions there that I think are reasonable. But so that so so here's a question um, in that world. Who owns the robot factories? Well, that would that's an interesting thought, because realistically, I don't know that any one person or any one company could or should own that at that point when it's a fully autonomous essentially production yeah 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 so i agree with you because um so if you think here's where we are today okay and you know the average working person is it's hard right oh yeah yeah <laughs> you know i mean this this is work it's really hard to you know make things happen but now imagine what happens is over this next century century and a half I'm, I'm suggesting it's highly likely that these all jobs are going to go away mm-hmm. and there will be still a lot more stuff. And so the, so, you know, who owns the robot factories in the future? I mean, I think there's to have social stability, you can't just having a few, you know, um, oligarchs owning everything. Uh, that's just not very stable or it's not morally fair either. So, so, um, uh, so I think, I think it's, that we're going to have to figure out how to get across that chasm from where we are now to there yeah, and, and maintain some sort of, you know, social fairness and order in the world. Um, and here I am, you know, a market capitalist saying that, right? <laughs> well, no. And, and it's funny to, to hear you say that, even to hear myself kind of answer that question back, because I hold the same kind of values. Like I'm, and this is also, again, kind of what I alluded to with the this the level system that you had talked about but the idea that it kind of portrays this false idea of meritocracy in my opinion whereas like i'm a very strong believer in meritocracy especially coming where i come from with which is trades and i kind of grew up that way i'm a second generation electrician not that it's Mm -hmm. that's a crazy accomplishment Mm -hmm. but it's but it's something that i've always reflected on and that i've always noticed in the best companies or the best cruise that I've been on is that that idea of meritocracy really does work. And it's something that I've, I'm drawn to. And so again, like I kind of share the same beliefs. And I, I can't, but you're right, like moving into the future when it comes to a production system that is entirely autonomous and entirely takes care of itself, where you have very liberal, literal, little, sorry, labor inputs. I don't see another way around that either than to it almost be collectively owned. Yes. Yeah. So, so here, here, here's the two of us. I think we're both, you know, uh, believe in merit and, and each individual person's um, responsibility for care, uh, carrying their own weight. Yeah. Right. And, and yet we're looking for how can this evolve in the future as there'll be a lot of stuff. Right. And so, right. So I think that's a fundamentally important issue, I think, for this next century of how do we cross that chasm from where we are now to that world and do it in a way that's not um it's not dystopian right and that doesn't it doesn't involve mass protests and mass civil unrest like i mean we see like we're seeing kind of cracks of that now right and we aren't even even close to this point but um yeah i completely agree i think that would probably be the biggest challenge of this whole thing even more than the engineering aspect of it yeah and in fact i i I suspect that as i said i went back and watched you know how it's made and you think about this suddenly you get this aha and say what's really been going on is that the poor working 
person who's, you know, out there doing the right thing. And there's more and more of this economic pressure taking away jobs and it's getting harder and harder. And yet we're not paying attention to that change, right? And, and so there's been a stoicism, I think, in places like Canada and the U.S. Um, in the face of that change. And, and it's also led to, you know, concentration of wealth because um, the, the wealth begets wealth in terms of these automated systems, right? right. Turning out more stuff and more money. So, right. And it's, it's funny because I actually like that idea of stoicism to me, that's actually like, I, I can take a lot of pride in that sometimes. Like, it's not like my job is easy. I just got back from actually that right now I'm on a 16 and five rotation, meaning I'm 16 days up North doing uh we're doing pipeline construction and oil field process centers construction. Uh-huh. And so a lot of that is, well, almost all of it is entirely remote. So it's not like it's close to any living areas. So we go up there for, 16 days come back for five days and repeat the cycle and over and over and but like i find i almost have to develop that sense of stoicism in the face of that because yes it's a it's a very well-paying job it's uh it's a good career to get involved in but there are challenges of it even if it's not even if it it means that financially we're okay there are still it's only set of challenges that come along with that and you're right in the world of automation that wouldn't be there either. Like I wouldn't have to face that challenge either. Right, 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 right. So, so, so Zach, you, you mentioned a couple of things, my level. So um, maybe uh, we can talk about that. Cause I, so that, that the reason for that in the book unfettered journey. So I imagine this future world and what I, what I, what, what I imagine is uh, as, as uh, Mike, the economist says, well, when the robots were making robots after the climate wars, Okay, Um, that, uh, you know, other countries, when there's all this stuff being made by the robot factories, they found more egalitarian answers. But in the U.S., because of our strong view in property rights, which I would say that's probably also true of Canada, uh, that that uh, the oligarchs in giving up owning the robot factories uh, put in place a number of laws called the Levels Acts. And the idea is you had this explicit level from one at the top to 99 at the bottom. And, you know, you had a level you could supposedly move up and down in levels based on merit. Uh, but then this you had certain kinds of restrictions around it um, and, and, and not uh, depend on your level. And so the question was, well, are the levels really... Um, meritocratic or are there some legacy built into them is, is sort of this question in the background uh, about this levels x and so so i, I kind of put that in place because i don't ask the question really do we have levels today yeah and i and i think that i mean you, there's a couple of obvious kind of political lines drawn in it not just the levels act but when then when you talk about the dome like these different yes. areas in it right it's so it, it there are it and it's funny that's what i find interesting right when there's kind of layers to the book not to mm-hmm. take a play on the levels act but as far as levels come in like i mean yeah i i think that people are born into essentially different levels at this point and i'm not saying that that's fair obviously but what i what i don't think matches up between reality and the book is i think you have a cap on seven levels that you can move up in the book i believe it was seven. well levels. i'm not explicit but i kind of said that that's kind of you know an order of what might uh, typically happen so Right. That maybe maybe Joe Duncan Smith, the main character, maybe he references that, that he's never known anybody to move up more than seven levels. Maybe that's well, where like, I got that from. Well, yeah. Well, in fact, uh, you know, the, the, you know, Joe is a level 42 you know, right. with one at the top. And you might imagine that Joe is just Joe average guy. 
Right. Average guy is 50. So he's moved up eight levels in his life, right? Right. Is the, is the guess behind. And of course, you know, why 42? Well, has anyone read the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? You know, it's level <laughs> level 42 is, you know, 42 is the answer to what is the meaning of life and everything. So. It's so funny that that book is actually sitting on my bookshelf right now. It's one that I keep meaning to read, but I'm sure I'll pick up <laughs> I'll pick up that symbolism when I actually do read that book. Um <laughs> Yeah, no. And, but as far as what you're saying, like, yeah, I, I do think that levels tend to exist today. Like it is very hard to move out of them. I think that the one deciding factor is that it is still possible to really move in in real life today. It's difficult, but but in the book, it seems it seems that it's more rigidly set in stone where you can't move. Yeah. And that's and that's intentional to kind of put a little bit of a point on this that you know if if it is rigid then we would probably agree that it seems unfair right absolutely yeah absolutely and which is why the one of my two protagonists is championing getting rid of these crazy laws right evie with the anti-levels movement which again like it's it's an honorable thing especially considering that people are locked in 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 this kind of future that you've laid out yes 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 Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, uh, so uh, so so I think we've we've kind of revealed a, f- a few things about the book. So it's uh, it's it's in the what I call near future, you know, far enough out that I think um, that I think I can say some things that are hi- highly likely from a hard science perspective, and and that uh, and that is to point out what I think are really important problems that we have to deal with. How do we cross this chasm over the next century, century, and have to get there? And um, and and then some of the other issues that will happen is, you know, how will we interact with our our um, uh, the, the the continuing advance of technology? You know, we we all carry around a, a cell phone these yep. days. Right. Everyone does. <laughs> right? Oh, yes. Everybody. OK. So where is that going to be in the future? Well, so one of the things that I do is I, I, I think that, again, this is not going to be crazy stuff. We're not going to upload our brains. We're not going to be cyborgs. This is silly. Uh, but. You, you can't imagine some things that will happen. You know, what will, what will be the, what will be the version of the cell phone on 140 years? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I imagine, you know, you've got a chip rather than something you carry around your pocket. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's connected to, um, you know, think sort of Bluetooth to a little implant in your cornea. Right. So you can see things projected in text on your <laughs> there. Absolutely. Or, or, you know, you're walking around and you mumble to yourself, where's the closest pizza joint? Yep. <laughs> and, you know, it's connected to the net in this case. And, you know, it, it downloads um, and finds it and points a little red uh, line on on the little thing on your eye. And so you just kind of follow the red line as uh, like an, um, uh, a, a map overlay and you go to where the pizza shop is. So. I, I thought that was really interesting the, to the idea of like the augmented reality AR. and. Yes. Uh, the whole idea of nest is actually one of the notes that I had written down while I was reading the book. Uh, sorry, listeners, if you notice a little bit of a disconnect here, we had some technical issues. So we'll jump right back into where we were, which was discussing augmented reality and how that'll be layered onto our vision. And I think uh, 
yeah, if we can pick it up from there, Gary, and try to sure. try to ignore the the annoyances with modern technology, we'll go ahead. <laughs> As I, I said, yes, it will I be annoying. I think you're right about a few technical glitches here. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you raised the question about uh, ARMO and uh, augmented reality map overlay, and in fact, um, you know, we already have that in development. Um, I know, for example, at Microsoft, they have these heads-up displays that they're using for factories, and for example. Uh, it allows um, someone to actually see all the steps on a heads-up display, and they can just follow along. And so, uh, and then let's think about another example. Um, so imagine that you're walking down the street in Montreal, and um, and you know you're a tourist and you haven't been there for, uh, and so you say, well, give me a little tour. And so, you know, you've got something you can have that on your cell phone now, right? And it takes you on a little tour, and you're walking down the street, and you can actually wave your phone around, and it can actually use the GPS to know where you're at. And imagine that says. Uh, you, you know, Zach, uh, here's the best uh, croissant shop in Montreal. And you walk into that shop and then um, and then someone pays whoever runs that app, you know, a Canadian dollar for you to walk in. Right. Yep. OK, th that's going to happen. That's worth, you know, tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars. Right. So so uh, because they already know where you're at. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so that's going to happen. We're going to have augmented reality. And in 140 years, you can easily imagine that it will be ubiquitous, right? So, And I imagine that'll be a little bit more sophisticated than Google Glasses and a phone in your pocket. Yeah. So imagine Google Glass, you know, 20.0. <laughs> right, right. You know, I, I've often thought about that, uh, just that augmented reality, how handy it would be. Like in my line of work, for example, there's so many times where I'm having to reach behind something. I'm thinking even just three days ago reaching in behind this set of electrical switch gear and trying to screw on a nut on this bolt that I'm trying to bolt everything together. I wish that I could see overlaid what is behind there. Like if I, <laughs> right, all right. I can imagine is a camera in the tip of my finger where I can actually see behind me what's happening. Okay. So now let's take that. I think that's a great example. So now imagine 140 years in the future. So what I think is if, if we, first thought about that, or if I described, you know, this nest, this neuro to external systems transmitter, basically, you know, you got your iPhone in the chip and it's connecting all this stuff. It sounds as, uh, as uh, she single magazine said, eerily authentic. Right. Um, so it's going to sound a little weird, but and then, then imagine it doesn't take very long for us to imagine we could be th there and doing that. And it doesn't feel quite so abnormal. And, so I, I, I think that's the real future is that if you thought about it, it sounds a little weird, but uh, it's we're still humans. We're still the same people. It's just that we've got these somewhat augmented, you know, abilities, but not it's not crazy. Augmented. Yeah. And but and one one key distinction that I really found interesting in your book, and this was again, this is written down as some of the like the key factors to me was the idea that I, I forget where Joe walks into, but it's some rather exclusive club and the idea is that everybody has to disconnect from nest and the idea is to produce authentic conversations and authentic ideas rather than being connected to the web and having all of this other dialogue being overlaid and you're being able to pull from other ideas pull from other people's experiences instead it's there's still that drive that desire for authentic speech which i think is i think is fascinating because i think even now like we see that the way that people relate to each other, for example, on Twitter or on any social media. And a lot of the times, you know, you don't know, like if, if you're talking to somebody back and forth, then all of a sudden 
they produce this idea to you where it's like, well, you know, was that your idea or did you just pull that from Google? Like, are you able to explain that any further? Like, I just I found it interesting the way that you included that into your book and the idea that people will still want to disconnect to have these authentic conversations. Right. And and, I, and it's another sort of a heads up about a, a danger, you know, as we think about people already walking around with their cell phones looking down, right? And right. getting run over by traffic because they're not paying attention <laughs> to the real world. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, where does that go and how do we find mental peace? You know, how do you find some space where you're not inundated by all this social media and all this stuff you know, filling your brain with, I would argue, a lot of nonsense, right? Uh, stuff yeah. that's distracting from living the real life that we all, you know, we're embodied in the world. We're, we're, we're animals that have evolved to, you know, live in the real world. And I think while we have to protect ourselves against uh, getting so distracted that we don't live. Yeah. yeah. Well, Which I, is I, kind I, of why I have the empty zone is a big part of the book, right? Which is, which is again, like, that's what most of my notes relate to is the empty zone. Like, as I kind of talked to before, this was just relating to one character who's primarily in there. But, but even that idea with the nest, I think it's just so key to have an off switch. You know what I mean? To be able yes. to disconnect because I like personally, when I, when I was reading this and looking to the future, I thought like, I don't think there's any way that they would purposefully build in an off switch. Cause to me, I, I don't know, like that, that's my biggest worry with it. Right. Is just that you are still able to disconnect and and almost manufacture those those real authentic conversations even though that sounds like that sounds like a oxymoron to to manufacture them but at the same time like you would almost have to when everybody is connected to this yeah and and i think how how um yeah, appealing it is you know that um social media kind of predicts what we want next and so that kind of sucks us in to be more engaged so you know what happens when you can have this little um you know personal uh digital assistance this um you know this um you know siri on steroids right, <laughs> they right. Can, they, you can talk to and then but it's not just uh you know like from your uh iphone but it's rather uh, in a chip that's in your head and you can always have someone talking to you in your head and now you've got this this ai that's talking to you and knows a ton about you that maybe you don't really want uh, him or her to know <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, and i like yeah. how you dealt with that too even though like in the beginning of the book i thought that i thought that that was going to come back around how joe almost has like this relationship with his his pippa i believe it was but his yes. like personal assistant and as soon as i read that i'm like oh my goodness like we have you know like that movie i think it was called she from a few Ex years ago exactly. you know like where and that seems like something that humanity is already kind of aware of and toying with the idea that that could be very realistic but uh yeah like i just thought that was interesting they included it even though it ended up being almost a side note in the book i was expecting it to come back around but i, I yeah i just found that fascinating because it, it would definitely be a real hazard of having something like that planted in your head that knows you so well yeah so so and that gets to the question of privacy um i think in europe they have um some laws talking about the right to be forgotten right yes i've heard that <laughs> And so, you know, we're, but we don't have anything like that in the United States. And I don't think so in Canada yet either. So, yeah. uh, so, you know, how do we protect our privacy as all this data gets out there about us? You know, so that's, that's an important question. I, I totally agree. And I think that's why I'm kind of skeptical on the, even the option of an off switch. <laughs> I hope that it's in there, <laughs> but, but the, the way that everything is gathered now, I'm like, there is no way they'd let you just turn it off. <laughs> but, but I, I hope that you're right. I really do.
Well, well, I hope at least it's anonymized, right? So, you know, yes. because uh, again, if you think about, let's pick on Amazon, for example, I mean, they collect a ton of information about what we just bought and what we want to buy. Mm-hmm. And so if you think back to the economics, you know, basic supply and demand, right? If there's more demand for something, they build more factories to make more of that stuff, right? So, so we're using the, this delay in the economic system between that demand builds up and now the prices go up and then they build more factories. Well, we have that data, you know, someone has it and Amazon does, but all of that data actually gives us the ability in the economic system to predict what is needed next. And statistically, then we could actually have an economic system that is more efficient, right? Right. It's not, so, it's not built on a lagging indicator. It's actually live time. Yeah. So, you know, the factory statistically chunk out the stuff that is next in demand and, you know, it shows up in your doorstep, <laughs> drone delivered or something. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's funny because when you introduce AI, like it, it starts to, I don't know, and AI and just all these autonomous systems that you're talking about where like something like that could be more of a reality. Like I think, and I think a lot of even like the social, I don't know, distortion that we're seeing now or the arguments, it's it's trying to push for that immediately. And it's like, well, you know, like maybe it's around the corner, but yeah, it, it's interesting because I think it would turn a lot of the arguments that we have nowadays, especially relating to economics kind of on their head, if we did have this available. Um, mm-hmm. It's just not quite there yet. Yeah, but it's good because uh, when it happens, then, things will be really different economically. And absolutely. And, and that gets back to, you know, our average um, person doing their job. Uh, well, what kind of job can you have? And, and then, and then the big, the big uh, question is, well, how do we find meaning and purpose in that kind of world where there are very few jobs? Yeah. And I, I agree with that. Cause again, like that, that's a lot of actually what this, this podcast has been built upon is because like, and my argument for that is, like I may have the worst job for that given day, like in electrical, it's not like I'm a, you know, a sewage worker. Like I, I don't have a job of that level, but every once in a while, for example, like as if I'm thinking of the worst job that I've ever had to do, it was pull float switches out of a septic tank. So I was pretty much, pretty much a sewage <laughs> yes. worker at that point. Cause we had to troubleshoot what was going on. Why isn't this thing pumping out? And so you can imagine the only reason we knew it wasn't pumping out is because it was over full. So it was, it was a disgusting job, but at the same time, when I'm thinking about it and trying to draw meaning from doing literally the worst task I've ever done, to me, it often relates back to being a provider, my my wife, my four boys. Like to me, that's where I draw all my meaning from. So it, the meaning is in providing for them. The meaning is for, you know, allowing them to live, not having to do what I'm doing. And yes. so like that is an interesting thought process that I was going through again, reading the book and just the challenges of what would happen if you weren't to have to do that. Because I know personally, like I draw a lot of meaning from being able to fill that role in my family. And that's that's kind of my main driver at work. It's how I don't really get lagged down by if I if I have a, a crappy task that day. It's just, well, no, this is work. This is I'm fulfilling my role as the provider. Like and, yeah. and I, to me, I know I would personally struggle with that in a world where I don't have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 you know, is this world that I portray, is it dystopian or utopian? Um, You know, I think the, the future will be up to us to decide where we are on that. There'll certainly be dystopian elements. There'll be utopian elements. In my book, for example, there's, you know, there's, you're not allowed to work more than 12 hours because, you know, (laughs) uh, you know, uh, four days or three hours or whatever. And, uh, 
because there otherwise there won't be enough jobs to go around so <laughs> right and but i do like again like and the way that you kind of you blend the two ideas even for example when it comes to everything being free except for the top 10% of goods and same with again the idea of where joe is relegated to 12 hours of work a week but it's also also recognized that the i'm not going to try to spoil the book but the issue that he solves on the moon would never have been accomplished if he was relegated and followed that 12 hours of work per yes, week. Yes. And I think that I think that that touches on uh, I'm sure that in your in your case as well, like it draws on that desire to actually be productive, to do something, because, again, I have that same thing. Like I'm you know, I'm not content necessarily just living like the most basic life. Like that's part of the reason why we extend ourselves. Why we try to go like try to reach for goals. And I, I like the way that you still overlaid that in this this future where work isn't quote unquote necessary, but people still have that drive. There is yeah. still that drive for production. We yeah. want to get something done, right? We yeah. want to accomplish something in our lives, whatever that is. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're right. I and mean, this is, is this utopian? Well, the idea is you, because there's all these robots around, uh, you know, you walk into, um, into a restaurant and you sit down and you order the meal and the, you know, you get served that meal. And when you're finished, if you happen bought anything in the top 10%, there's an example of, you know, buying a, a special bottle of wine while you pay for that. But otherwise you just wave to the robots and leave because it's free. <laughs> yeah. A lot of that 10% seemed to have to do with uh, alcohol. <laughs> They <laughs> really find alcohols in the book. That I well, well, and, and, and there is a, there's a little climate change, uh, you know, overlay in this because I mentioned there's briefly there's the climate wars around the year 2100, and so as a result, uh, they at one point drink a good Canadian wine. Yeah, <laughs> that is funny. Yeah, I did pick up on the climate change wars and everything like that. Yeah, yeah, it, and that's what I liked about it is it, there's kind of like little I don't know little key indicators that still that still seem to play on human realities that we face that I think a lot of people like to deny, for example, the idea. And again, this top 10%, the idea of competition, like, I don't think that even in a world like that, that that's, that's just going to be eliminated out of the human race. Right. Because we, we were competitive animals, you know, from yeah. the very beginning, um, we will compete. And, and it's hard to imagine that um, we won't still have a sort of social competition for prestige. Joe says, well, you know, someone always wants the, the best view on the building and the apartment at the top, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, that's part of human nature to compete. Um, can we do that in a way that also, you know, recognizes that we respect our fellow human beings, right? And mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, there's a theme in here too that um, that the uh, human progress is built on this sort of collective moving humanity forward right yeah so that uh it's it's not about any one person getting it done and in fact if you if you went back to the empty zone and you started all over again you would probably build the same darn kind of technology up again because you know technology helps us it makes life uh easier you know you'll build the water wheel yeah. <laughs> you, you will do the the basic things and you'll start recreating civilization again so in some ways it's um, the, the, this idea that you might, you know, retreat to the land and, and, you know, be by yourself only, um, that's a little bit of a over romanticized idea. You know, we, we really wouldn't like that. <laughs> I think so too. And I, I, you know, it's funny cause I've had this, 
not an argument, but this discussion in real life at work, you know, because you come across all different kinds of people with all different ideas. Right. And this idea that, oh, we should just be running around in the forest with no care in the world. And I'm like, do you think you'd be happy there? Like, honestly, like and do you know, you know, like all the trials and tribulations that humanity had to go through, going through that to progress to this point, like. But yeah, you're right. Like even when and, and that was, again, like another part of the book that I really enjoyed was when he was in the empty zone or in exile was uh, it just the way that they did kind of have to build back up from nothing. But but and and also, again, like the character Eloy in the book, who I relate to most, most <laughs> personally, like and and I, I'm not saying that as like a, a gloating factor, like I almost felt bad because I'm like, oh, he's not like, you know, like I don't, I'm not particularly proud that I relate most to him, but. But just this idea of self-sufficiency of, you know, really taking pride in your work, taking pride in your accomplishments. Like I definitely I feel that and I related to that. But I liked how even Eloy was softened up by uh, his partner, Freya. And I just I liked yes. that. Like I liked the dynamic and it shows kind of how people can come together. You know, like we all may have different little, I don't know, core values or things that we really hold true. But but there's still a way to work together and to make those all mesh. And I yeah, found that yeah, was it, particularly, yeah. particularly well shown when they were in exile. Yeah. I I Eloy is a good guy, right? Yeah. I mean, he's he solid. He, he's um, self-sufficient. He admires self-sufficiency in others, yeah. you know, and um, you know, so um, yeah, he's a great guy, right? <laughs> yeah. And to me, like to me, one of the things that I've, I've kind of always said is that I, I really enjoy being dependable, but I don't know that I want to be depended upon all the time. And I got that kind of same sense. Like he wants to be that rock, that dependable person, but, but it's not just a one way exchange all the time. And I, that's, again, that's what I kind of related to. It's like, yeah, the, I, I totally understand that in a character. Yeah. Yeah. Very Canadian too. Huh? <laughs> yeah. He is quite Canadian. He's very Albertan. If you wanted to nail it, nail it down to two provinces, he'd be very Albertan or Saskatchewan. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it, it, it's just fascinating. And I loved, I loved also Joe's kind of transformation or journey in almost self-reliance and in finding that meaning. Cause I noticed a lot at the beginning of the book, he almost seemed like he was obviously searching for a question. So he was actively asking questions, but he seemed quite naive on that front in the way of of just, of just that self-sufficiency like he asked about and he purposely wanted to disconnect from his Pippa like he was trying to kind of seek that out it felt like and then he really discovered that in the empty zone when he really was quite self-reliant yes because he realized that you know you can't just be inside the journey inward uh, inside your head you have to get out in the world and there's an exterior thing of getting out with other people and 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 you know testing yourself against the real world so yeah. And I, I just I found that, yeah, the way that you played that out and kind of taking a step back from all the technology and everything, I thought it was really interesting because I think I, I think it's so easy nowadays to kind of take for granted all of the luxuries that we even have. And so and people seem to, I don't know, lose the fascination or the awe in where we are sometimes like and I'm the same way, like I'll take way too many things for granted. And then all of a sudden, you know, something happens or you hear about some kind of something devastates a friend or a family member and you're like, oh, my goodness, like it, it takes a something like that to really shock you into realizing how good it is sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, and and so the, actually I'll, I'll, I'll give it a little hint that uh, you probably didn't catch on because you mentioned that this is a book with many levels. And yes. it's true. So so actually one of the uh, levels is that um, this is actually an allegory of the Adam and Eve story. That makes sense. I can see that. And I was actually going to talk too about just 
especially in that latter half of the book is more of the like a religious aspect comes into the book as well. Yeah, so it's actually, um, I'm very happy to say that Unfettered Journey has now won 10 awards. Wow, congratulations. Um, it's, it's, and that includes um, a, twice it's won for best spiritual fiction and then twice for visionary uh, and inspirational fiction. And again, in addition to, you know, science fiction, it won the Eric Hoffer Award uh, for, uh, which is a philosophical award. So it's doing quite well. It's now in eight languages, too. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> and, and for your Canadians also in French, as well as English and, and everything else. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? It's funny. Like the book, the book reminded me a little bit. I don't know if you're familiar with the author, but probably is pretty big. Robert Heinlein, yes. like the, yes. the moon is a harsh mistress is one of my favorite books of all time. But the reason why I liked it so much is because it sprinkles in like the futuristic AI and robotics like your book does. But it also has that layer of philosophical meaning built into it. And it really it challenges like the human aspect of everything in that type of a world. And yeah, that that's what I really found fascinating about the book. Yeah. So, well, thanks. I And yeah, I think so. I think to to sort of summarize this, I think this is a hard science view. I think this is highly likely to have these particular problems. You know, not not so much the levels acts and that kind of thing. Although I think, you know, that's that drives conflict in the book. But I think it puts a point on the fact that the issue of of you know how how, how we have a segment of society. You know, we're not all equal in any case. And that will continue to be something that we'll uh, struggle with, right? So, so there's that. Uh, but I think it's I think it points realistically to the issues we have to face, whether they're how we take our technology and and, and incorporate it in our life, how we deal with privacy issues, how we deal with you know the government, all this information out there about us, and how do we, you know, m maintain um, you know uh, individual. Uh, rights within this mm -hmm. and then all these economic changes that will i think clearly will happen so how's that happen and and then when we have lots more time because we will mm -hmm. <laughs> what do we do with our time how do we find meaning and 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 as we continue to be humans and uh you know we're going to be stuck here on earth <laughs> we're not going we're not we're we're not going to be flying off at you know faster than the speed of light we're not going to leave the solar system anytime soon it'll be centuries you know, I've I've often thought about that too, and I I say the same thing. I'm like, oh, I don't know why we worry about that so much. <laughs> I don't think it's happening. We might as well get comfortable here. Yeah, it's just you know you just can't go faster. That's you know Einstein's theory has been proved over and over again. You can't go faster than the speed of light. Um, you know the the uh, I had just read um, the the you know Weir who wrote The Martian, uh, his book. Oh, Andy uh, Weir. The, yeah, um, Andy Weir. The I, Hail, I Mary have... Pro Hail Mary Hail Mary Project. That one. I loved that book too. Okay, so so just for the audience, what he, one thing he does nicely is he points out how darn hard it is to, you know, even get to any close um, um, exoplanet that might be around some close star. So, you know, I mean, that's and he, he stretches what is possible there, too. Uh, but, you know, it's just not going to happen. Um, in fact, I think here's an interesting thing. We've got the James Webb telescope up there we're we're now able to um investigate far more exoplanets and whether it's james webb or the telescope after that sometime i predict in the next 20 30 years um, we will have such a good inventory of all of the stars sort of close by say within you know 20 light years of uh, our solar system that will answer a fundamental question for humankind that is is there any exoplanet within say 10 or 20 light years that we could possibly imagine 
uh, susceptible wife? Hmm. And if the answer is no, then think about it. We'll know that we're profoundly stuck here forever. <laughs> we'll never, ever have Star Trek. None of that stuff will ever happen. <laughs> yeah. yep. And if we find one that's, you know, I don't know, five light years away, if there's one that, you know, you could imagine living on is better than Mars or something, you know, it's got an atmosphere, it's got water. Uh, well, then we can aspire to maybe get there in centuries, right? Maybe. Yeah, yeah but, maybe. Maybe we'll become an interplanetary species, but that's that's a big maybe. <laughs> Yeah. So, but I think the, but, but you know, here's a, you know, half of science fiction imagines this crazy stuff and, and we'll have an answer that's, that might be really depressing. <laughs> We're stuck here. Sorry. <laughs> we, we better take care of the earth. You know? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. No. And I, yeah, I, yeah, I, that's one thing that I really did love about the book is that it all felt uh, very reality, like very centered on the fact that this is all plausible. Like none of this stuff felt felt crazy to me and uh, like that's why you said it's a hard science driven book and that you know i appreciated that in reading it because it none of it felt outlandish to me yeah well good 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 okay <laughs> yeah yeah well i uh i don't want to take up too much of your time and i know that we had to dance around these technical issues for quite a while so <laughs> sorry that the the actual interview portion wasn't as long as i'd hoped it would be but uh <laughs> But I, I really appreciated your time. And again, like maybe you could just throw a few plugs out there where people can find you or read more information on the book. Um, I know that it's available, for example, on Audible. That's where I got it. But uh, but yeah, I'll kind of give the floor back to you, Gary, and you can tell people where to check it all out. Yeah, so well, so it, the book is Unfettered Journey, and you'll find it in all the formats, audio, book, paperback, Kindle, etc. Around the world, it's on Amazon, it's on Ingram Spark wherever you buy a book. It's in eight languages now. As I said, it's won 10 awards, which I'm very um, pleased with. And um, yeah, so go out and find it. Um, it's philosophical. I will tell your readers that hang in there until you get to what I call the footbridge scene. And if you do that, you're going to be uh, hooked by my um, by my characters, uh, and including the kick-ass women characters. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, you'll get through through the opening like kind of inner monologue of Joe, and then then yeah, then it really starts to kick off. I really liked it. Yeah, well, Zach, it's been a pleasure, and and uh, you know, I, I I think this is, I really appreciate the fact that uh, we're talking about the average working uh, person out there. Um, you know, this is this is a book that um, that um, speaks to that too. I think it absolutely does. That's what I drew from it. Again, like. It's got a ton of layers and you may find different areas that you resonate with. But to me, again, yeah, that's that's what I found really interesting and in trying to relate it to what I do. Like, would my job be replaced? What does that mean? And yeah, I, I think that I think that anybody could could draw a lot from this book. Thanks so much, Jack. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you found some value in this week's episode. If you did and are interested in more content like this, please rate, review, subscribe and recommend the podcast to a friend. I really appreciate all the feedback you've given me to this point and look forward to hearing from you again. As always, the podcast page is The Plaid Jacket Philosopher on Facebook, at Jacket Plaid on Twitter, and at Plaid Jacket Philosopher on Instagram. That concludes this week's episode. Thank you so much for the continued support, and especially to those of you who reach out weekly with comments on each episode. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you all again soon.